Thank you for joining us around the fire. For more information or to make a donation, please visit randomactsnetwork.com. Now, want to hear a scary story? It was a chilly February evening, and all the residents of Church Street had long been snowed in by the storm. The narrow one-street subdivision sat just a few miles away from town, lined by thick pines from each side. Even though the town was near, the street felt quite secluded. It had the aura of a gated community, even though their only gates were evergreen. The neighbors all knew each other, and events and parties frequently spilled beyond the sidewalk and into the street. Everyone looked out for the local kids, and many people left their doors unlocked. It wasn't even seven o'clock, but it had been pitch black for hours. The snow had been coming down with such a force for so long that the roads into town had disappeared. Plows would be through by the morning, most likely, but the residents of Church Street were snowed in for the night. Evelyn's parents called to let her know that they were staying in a hotel an hour away. They'd been visiting friends, and Evelyn was glad to have the house to herself. She hadn't been home alone there since before she left for college, and the storm gave her the perfect excuse to stay longer in Miss Class. She bundled up and stepped onto the front porch. A biting gust of wind nearly forced her back inside. Through the endless curtain of pouring snow, she could barely make out the neighbor's house across the street. Shielding her joint from the wind, she clicked the lighter and lit the twisted end. Once she was nice and high, she'd find a snack and pick a movie to watch. Taking in the smoke, she continued looking around. The street had only a few lights, and the illumination didn't stand a chance against the storm. To the left lived Mrs. Keating and her husband. She was lovely, a retired teacher, but he had never said a word to Evelyn even when she lived there. Their living room lights were on. They were probably sleeping in front of the TV. The house next door on the other side belonged to the Washingtons, a group of five that perpetually resembled a perfect family portrait. The lights were on throughout their house, so it seemed the whole family was home. Evelyn flicked the butt of her joint into the wind, it was biodegradable, and went back into the house, deadbolting the door. She hung up her coat, removing her dripping hat and boots. As she headed into the living area, walking directly towards the back door, she thought she caught a glimpse of movement on the back deck. She froze, staring at her reflection in the glass. She took a step towards the back door, but immediately changed her mind. She had just smoked. She was stoned. Evelyn went into the kitchen and warmed herself some leftovers, cracking open a can of soda. Flipping through the channels, she found an old Goldie Hawn movie and settled into the couch. After a while, she returned to the kitchen to clear her plate. As she watched her reflection cross the house in the glass of the back door, she was reminded of what had happened before. She left her plate in the sink and calmly walked to the door, nearly pressing her face up to the glass. She looked into the night. The snow was still coming down, beautifully blanketing the trees. Evelyn's eyes followed the flakes, haphazardly blowing through the wind on their way to the ground. The entire deck was nearly invisible in the mounding snow. It took a few moments for Evelyn to realize what she was looking at. 
but then her heart sank into her chest. Just on the other side of the glass was a pair of footprints in the snow. It appeared someone had walked from around the house, onto the deck, and up to the glass door. From there, they continued in the other direction. Evelyn slid the door open and a gust of wind entered the house. Shocked, she slammed it closed again, quickly turning the lock. The door had been unlatched the whole time. She took deep, measured breaths, trying not to panic. If she had come in from smoking just a few moments later, she may have met the surprise visitor face to face. Evelyn called her parents, but they didn't answer. She called a friend, but he didn't answer either. She was desperately trying to feel like she wasn't alone. Finally, she called her neighbor, Mrs. Keating. Hello? Mrs. Keating, hi. It's Evelyn, from next door. Evelyn, sweetheart. I thought I saw you walking in the other day, just visiting. House-sitting, actually. My parents are out of town, uh, but I, I actually, I'm sorry. I, I'm kind of freaking out right now. I'm here alone, and outside in the snow, there's footprints coming up the back door. I think I saw someone trying to get in, and I, I don't know if they left or... Oh my or... goodness, dear, you sound so frightened. First, have you made sure all of the doors are locked? Yes, everything is locked now. Okay, sweetie. You need to call the police. Oh, I thought that too, but they won't be able to get here before tomorrow at the earliest. Mrs. Keating didn't respond. Evelyn's eyes stayed on the back door. I called my parents, but I guess they're busy. I don't know. I'm just really scared. Mrs. Keating? Mrs. Keating? Oh, I'm sorry, dear. I I thought to double-check my own locks, and... There are footprints leading to our back door, too. Evelyn didn't know what to say. Isn't that strange? Our doors are locked, of course. I can't believe we didn't notice. We're sitting right here. Mrs. Keating, I think I have to call the Washingtons. The footprints go towards their house. Mrs. Keating planned to phone the police at the same time, and they'd follow up with the other once they had more information. It felt like Evelyn's ribcage would bruise from the pressure of her pounding heart, and she was desperate to calm down. She pulled a bottle of whiskey from the pantry to her lips and drank. Mr. Washington picked up the phone on the second ring, and was as surprised as Mrs. Keating to hear from Evelyn. After she explained, he walked to the back of the house. A long silence was followed by him confirming that they, too, had footprints walking up to their back door, which then continued towards the next house. They disconnected so Mr. Washington could reach out to his neighbor. Before Evelyn could decide what to do next, he was already calling back. The Beckers were out of town, he said, and confirmed on their security system that the house was locked up tight. Whoever it was must have continued to the next house. Evelyn was at a loss for what to do. She didn't know the neighbors any further down the road. She turned the TV off, but the silence was blaring. Just after she turned it back on, her phone rang. It was Mrs. Keating. Evelyn, dear, have you spoken to anyone else yet? Yes, I, I spoke to Mr. Washington. The footprints went to his back door, too. Rod Wilson a few doors down confirmed there were footprints there, too, and they keep on going to the next house. Well, do you know who lives there? Yes, it's that queer little man and his dogs. 
I can never remember his name, and I don't have his phone number. What did the police say? What do you think? They said they'll be here in the morning. Do you have anyone else's number on the street? Uh, yes. Just Betty Whitaker in the last house at the end. Mrs. Keating kept Evelyn on the line while she made a three-way call. The phone rang a few times, and finally, Betty answered. Whitaker residence. Betty, dear, it's Loretta. Hi, Loretta. How are you holding up? I've also got little Evelyn on the line with me. Hello. Little Evelyn? Little Evelyn Peters? Hi, Mrs. Whitaker. Betty, I've got kind of a weird question to ask you. Are you near your back door? No, I'm upstairs in the den. Why do you ask? We don't want to alarm you, but we think someone's going around trying to break into houses. Everyone on the street had these footprints walking up to their back doors. You keep your doors locked, right? Let me just find my slippers. Here. I'm going downstairs now to check. Nobody ever comes all the way to the end of the street. Not even my own grandchildren. So I don't think... Mrs. Whitaker? Betty, do you see footprints? Yes. I'm looking at my back porch now. There are footprints leading up to the door, but none leading away. What came next was a blur. Word spread quickly over the phone, and a group of three husbands, Mr. Washington included, took off for the Whitaker house together to ensure that Betty was all right. The men looked everywhere, but didn't find anyone inside. They couldn't find any indication that someone had entered from the backyard. One of them joked that Betty was the source of the footprints the whole time, that she had forgotten where she lived and wandered to every house before she finally got home. Though a tad cruel, it did account for the fact that the footprints never left. Betty agreed to stay with the Washingtons until the morning, until the police could confirm that her home was safe. She didn't want to be there alone. In the mid-afternoon the next day, the roads were finally cleared enough for emergency vehicles to get through. Betty met the officers outside her house, watching an entire team go in and out, checking every room thoroughly. They couldn't find a sign that anyone had been there other than Mrs. Whitaker herself, and the footprints out back were long lost to the storm. The house, they said, was secure. Both Mrs. Keating and Evelyn received calls from Mrs. Whitaker to share the news and invite them over for cocoa. The neighbors bundled up and walked to the end of the street together, laughing about how scared they had been. Now that the footprints were gone, even Evelyn started to question if they were ever there at all. Mrs. Whitaker had just gone into the kitchen to fetch the schnapps when both Evelyn and Mrs. Keating heard a dull sound from below. They went silent, holding for another noise. They heard Betty tuddling around the kitchen, but nothing else. After an hour or so, the guests put on their coats and headed home. They were only passing the next driveway when they heard a horrible, petrified scream from the house they'd just left. Evelyn sprinted back to the Whitaker house, leaving Mrs. Keating behind. As she neared the driveway, a thin man burst through the front door, running into the yard and towards the street. He wore all black and his eyes were dark and wide. 
He rushed so frantically that he fell to all fours for a few strides before getting back up to his feet. Evelyn screamed. Mrs. Keating saw him too and began yelling to alert the other neighbors as the man made his way down Church Street. Evelyn threw herself through the front door, calling for Mrs. Whitaker. There was no response. She called again, stepping slowly towards the dining room she'd left just minutes ago. The smell of cocoa still lingered. As Evelyn passed through the frame into the room, she found the poor old woman lying lifeless on the floor. The basement door was wide open, and Evelyn's eyes followed the stairs down into the darkness. Below, she saw several boxes and suitcases, one of which was lying open and empty. Just looking at it, it should not have been large enough to contain an adult man. Mrs. Keating finally made it to the front door. She hollered something about the intruder, but Evelyn didn't comprehend it. Stay in there, Mrs. Keating. Evelyn didn't want her to have to see her old friend lying there, an innocent casualty in the stranger's search for shelter. There was no blood, no sign of struggle. Poor Mrs. Whitaker likely died of fright. Footprints. Story by Brian Renaud. Told by Shannon Lee Weber. Featuring Terry Lynn Hudson and Hannah Mary Simpson. Deep in the heart of a large hospital was a ward for those long forgotten by any loved ones. In this decaying wing, three old men shared a narrow room with just one window at the very end. The man who had been there the longest, Harold, had the bed nearest to the window. Years ago, he'd been in a terrible accident, and he was left to die in the hospital. At some point over the years, Harold fell unconscious and never woke back up. He laid there below the windowsill each day, breathing in and out quietly, never opening his eyes. In the middle bed was George, a chronically ill man pushing 80. He had a weak heart and many troubles with mobility. Yet, he was known for remaining endlessly cheerful despite all of this. He enjoyed the light of the window from his resting place, but couldn't see anything but the sky above. George's positive nature could really bother the man in the third bed, furthest from the window. Richard was quiet and always grumpy. He was known for saying that George was happy enough for the both of them. From Richard's bed, he could barely enjoy even the light from the window. He spent his days frowning and avoiding George's attempts at conversation. Eventually, Harold passed away in his sleep. The nurses somberly came in to remove his few belongings and change the bedding. This ward would be ceasing operations soon, they mentioned, and they would not be taking any new patients. The nurses shifted George to the bed by the window, and then Richard to the center mattress. Even though Harold had always been silent, the room felt especially still with an empty bed. After the nurses opened the curtains and left the room, 
George enthusiastically welcomed the view. Overjoyed, he told Richard what he saw. People walking by in the square, a group of young, beautiful women. There was a traffic jam outside of an ice cream parlor and a police officer walking by. A group of children chased each other on the sidewalk. In a matter of moments, Richard and George felt more connected to the outside world than they had in years. Though it pained him even to speak or smile, George made sure to describe what he saw to Richard at least once a day, sometimes even more. He was weak and tired, but he assured Richard that he was happy to do it. George told Richard of the falling rain and growing puddles in a thunderstorm, followed by clear skies and a stunning rainbow. He chuckled at the businessmen, always in such a hurry, and laughed with the playing children. As the days went on, Richard wanted more and more to see it all for himself, but he knew he'd have to wait for George to die for that to happen. Of course he didn't wish for George to die, but he didn't mind the idea of having a room with a view all to himself. How many more chances would he have in life to set his eyes on a group of beautiful women? After a few weeks had passed, Richard awoke in the middle of the night. George was tossing and turning in his sleep, groaning and mumbling. Occasionally, he'd have an attack in his sleep, and he kept an emergency bottle of pills on his nightstand in case a nurse couldn't get to him right away. Richard set his eyes on the bottle, feeling the hairs on the back of his neck stand up. He looked to George, still squirming in his sleep, and reached out towards the bottle. In a quick decision, he purposely knocked the pills to the floor. The sound startled George awake, who quickly gasped and clutched his chest. Richard had pulled his arm back under the blanket just in time. It felt like his own heart would explode. George attempted to sit up but couldn't, awkwardly leaning towards the side of the bed. With great effort, he swung his arm to the nightstand. His hand slid around the table, knocking over the water glass and bumping into the lamp. Richard watched George's hand stop moving as his eyes landed on the pill bottle that had rolled across the floor. Then they shifted, locking with Richard. George knew what Richard had done. And that's how he died, tilted toward Richard's bed, eyes wide open and glaring directly at him. Richard didn't sleep that night. He looked past George's frozen stare at the closed curtains. Tomorrow, he told himself, he would see the world. The next morning, the nurses cleared George's things and moved Richard to the bed by the window. With two empty beds, he suddenly felt quite alone. But that won't matter, he thought. The world outside would keep him company. Finally, he would see for himself all the things George had described. As the last attendant left, George asked her to open the curtains. She obliged, and the room was filled with the light from outside. George turned on his side, taking in the view. But all he saw was a brick wall. The Bed by the Window, told by Terry Lynn Hudson. Inspired by folklore and written by Brian Renaud.
Danny and Cindy were enjoying their second date together. They had gone to a scary movie, splitting a large popcorn and a soda with two straws, and then for a long drive in Danny's car. The warm air coming in through the windows felt like summer waving its final goodbye before fall. They drove out of town and up to the top of a hill known as the Overlook, also known as the local makeout spot. Danny parked the car, turning off the headlights, and Cindy absorbed the view ahead of her. She could see the entire town of Haddington, though it was just a mess of lights from here. Surprisingly, it was almost romantic. Wanting a change in music, Danny turned the radio dial, catching an emergency news bulletin in progress. Police are still searching for a local fugitive known as the Hook Man, on the loose since escaping yesterday from the Maple Grove Mental Hospital and believed to be heading south. Authorities are still unsure how he managed to leave the facility, and though local activists are encouraging a town curfew, the mayor has not yet announced a plan. We're recommending all you lovebirds out there stay in groups and head home as soon as you can. We'll be back with the full story at 10. That's this so scary. Danny, uh, close the windows. <laughs> oh, come on. Danny, please. Fine, but they're just going to fog back up. I think we should go back into town. <laughs> Babe, we're safe. We aren't far from the prison. The doors are locked. They said he was going south. Nowhere near it's us. It's too He'd close. had no reason to come up here. You think I don't he wanna... wants to take in the view? He did have a good point. Come here. Let me hold you. He moved in on her once more, but she firmly declined. I want to go home now. Ugh, you girls are always afraid of something. Wounded, he retreated to his seat. He placed the keys back into the ignition and started the car. In that moment, Cindy heard a faint scraping noise outside her door. Did you hear that? Danny turned the car off again and the silence returned. Danny, don't stop the car. I want to go. He's here, Cindy. Danny! He held his right hand up, forming the shape of a hook with his fingers and leaning towards Cindy. It's the hook man. He's here to murder all the horny teenagers. Danny! She was still frustrated, but laughing a bit helped relieve some of her fear. (laughs) Well, I'm glad I'm safe, but it looks like you're screwed. Yeah, just not the way I hoped. (sighs) I'm going to show you there's no one out there, okay? If I do that, can we stay? It's not even nine o'clock. I don't care what time it is. I'm not in the mood. He reached to touch her face, but she shifted away. Challenge accepted. Cindy yelped in protest as Danny exited the car, over-dramatically looking around. He called out in an exaggerated macho voice, tempting whoever could be listening to come out of the shadows. She squinted, looking into the darkness. There was only Danny. She crossed her arms, checking the mirrors. He returned to the car, opening the door. That turn you on? The opposite, actually. Can we please go? Whatever. Without getting into the car, he slammed the door and began walking towards the trees. Cindy called from her window, exasperated. Where are you going? I'm taking a piss. She was furious. Sitting in the dark car alone, she found herself questioning her taste in men and vowed to do better. A few minutes passed, and Cindy began to grow anxious. 
She glanced through the back window to the evergreen trees, but only saw the dark. She turned back around and sat, picking at her nails. Obviously, Danny was going to try to scare her. She wouldn't bother with his stupid games. She sat straight ahead, stone-faced. But several more minutes passed, and she couldn't help but feel that he was awfully committed to the joke. Even someone as stubborn as Danny would have gotten bored by now. Cindy honked the horn, keeping her eyes on the trees behind her. Nothing. She honked again and again, but still quiet. She tried to force back the frustrated tears welling in her eyes. Was he going to keep her out here all night? Cindy waited there, mentally going through her to-do list to pass the time, and thought about her family. She'd likely be grounded for missing curfew, though that would be a good excuse to avoid Danny for a while. She just hoped they hadn't heard about the lunatic on the loose. As she pondered what she'd say when she got home, it began to rain. A few drops at first, then more and more steady. A storm was expected, but not until the dead of night. She knew Danny would never stay out in the rain by choice, and a deep feeling of dread settled into her stomach when he still didn't return. Looking out her window, she noticed that the glass remained clear, free from droplets or any moisture at all. She looked to the other side, noting the dry window next to the steering wheel. Slowly cracking her window open, she took in the night air. It was dry, almost dusty. It didn't smell like rain. Cindy opened the glove compartment, shifting through papers and trash, but there was nothing of use. She felt underneath her seat and then below the driver's seat, where she touched the body of a long metal flashlight. She pulled it onto her lap, clicking the button, and it spat a bright beam of light into her eyes. Centering herself and breathing deep, Cindy pulled her shoulders through, sitting in the window. She raised the flashlight above, illuminating the trees behind her. There was Danny's gutted body dangling from the branches that reached over the car. A long, open gash ran from the tip of his chin to his groin, the contents from within spilling out and drooping below. The roof of the car was painted brown with blood and guts. It had never rained at all. Cindy screamed, dropping the flashlight under the car. She pulled herself back inside, shutting the window. And though all the air had left her lungs, the scream continued. Pulling herself together, she squirmed into the driver's seat, feeling for the ignition. She knocked into the headlights, turning them on. Only a few feet in front of the car stood the escaped fugitive in his torn and tattered jumpsuit from the sanitarium. He was a massive, hulking man with long, greasy hair and a sprawling, rotting grin peeking from the shadows overtaking his face. Where his right hand should have been was a long, rusty hook, dripping with blood. Cindy screamed again and furiously groped for the keys. The man stepped towards the car and she stopped, staring at the horrifying figure before her gleefully dangling the car keys in the headlights. She pressed her hands on the horn as hard as she could, screaming again with all her might, 
Why couldn't Danny have left the keys? The lunatic bounded towards her, smashing the driver's side window with his hook. Cindy had already jumped into the back seat and opened the door. As she took her first step into the grass, the man grabbed a handful of her hair, forcing her back into the car. She swatted and hit him, but he didn't flinch. His eyes looked hungry, and Cindy was his next meal. His massive, dirty fingers gripped her head with such force that she could feel the hair ripping from her scalp. Her fists landed with less and less force, and she began to accept her fate. Ready for the finale, he pulled her from the back seat by her ankles. She was nearly limp, heavily flopping from the car into the grass with a thud. She couldn't catch her breath. She was feeling faint. The hookman was going to kill her. He fell to his knees, lifting her head from the dirt. They looked at each other, almost agreeing to what would come next, and he raised the hook high above. Then he brought it down, aiming for her throat. But she threw her right hand up mostly by instinct and deflected the blow. For a moment, they were locked there together. The hook had pierced all the way through her hand, latching around her wrist. She screamed in agony, attempting to free herself. He pulled back too, and she felt the muscles in her hand tear away. And then, a glimmer caught her eye from beneath the car. It was the metal casing of the flashlight, only a few inches from her left hand. She clutched the light and swung the metal body against his temple with all her strength. At last, her right hand separated from his hook with one final tear. She now used both hands to smash the lantern directly between his eyes. Cindy squirmed through the grass, crawling like an animal towards the trees before pulling herself to her feet. As she sprinted into the night, a waterfall of red gushed from her arm. Her hand was unrecognizable, and at some point he had gashed her above the shoulder, too. Cindy knew the man was gaining on her as she continued along the tree line, but she was moving as fast as she could. She could only hope that she could reach the bottom of the hill and flag someone on the road. Then, as she came around a cluster of trees, she saw a car several yards away, parked against the steep hillside of the overlook. The windows were foggy and she heard the muffled sounds of music. Danny and Cindy weren't the only couple on the hill that night. Screaming for help, Cindy made it to the car, beating her good hand against the trunk, then along the windows and finally against the driver's door. Receiving no response, she tried the handle. It was open. She threw herself into the empty seat and shut the door. In that moment, her eyes landed on the two corpses in the rearview mirror. The keys were in the ignition, and she started the engine and locked the doors. She wiped the window with her left hand, trying to clear the condensation, and threw the car into reverse. Cindy backed into the road, trying to ignore the dead couple sitting behind her, and switched to drive. The car was facing the bottom of the hill and the main road. She could lay on the gas and make it to town before the radio switched to the next song. But the lingering monster had appeared in the shadows behind the car and she couldn't help but feel like she could do something more. Switching back into reverse, she pressed the pedal flat. 
The car lurched backwards, throwing the bodies behind her onto the floor, and gained speed as she neared the man. He stepped out of the way just in time, and she hit the brakes. He lunged towards the car, smashing the back window with his hook, and reached in for Cindy. She pressed on the gas, but the car hesitated in the mud. The bloody hook grew closer and closer. Finally, the car continued forward, throwing the man to the ground. Cindy twisted the wheel to the side, skidding in a full circle and facing him once again. He lifted himself from the dirt and now stood directly between the car and the steep hill looking into town. Fuck you! The car hurtled towards both the man and the drop-off. He lifted his hook into the air and began towards the car, shifting to his right to avoid the vehicle. But that's what Cindy had anticipated, and she yanked the steering wheel left. The front right of the car barreled into the hook man with a loud crunch, launching him over the side of the overlook, down hundreds of feet into the rocky valley below. She wanted to see his body, but she wouldn't stop the car until she made it to safety. As she neared the lights of the town, the tears came, along with the full realization of what had just happened. Cindy pulled into the police station and parked, crying and shaking. She gingerly touched her wounds. She wanted to faint, or at least sleep until she woke up to find it all a nightmare. But then, she remembered she wasn't alone in the car. Slowly opening the door, Cindy stepped onto the pavement. She was dizzy and shivering, leaving a trail of blood. The rain was moving in now, and the droplets joined the crimson stream running down her arm. She headed towards the station entrance, limping around the back of the car, when her eyes landed on an odd form at the front of the vehicle. Lodged into the metal, just above the tire, was the man's rusty hook, with the bloody stump still attached at the end. The Hook, story by Brian Renaud, based on the urban legend, told by Shannon Lee Weber, featuring Aaron Holland, Brian Renaud, and Shannon Lee Weber. Dr. Marilyn York was relocating her family from Park City, Wisconsin to West Plainfield, Texas, where she planned to open her own practice. She'd previously flown out with her husband, Roger, to view houses, closing on one shortly thereafter. Now they packed the van and Roger set off for their new home with their two-year-old son, as Marilyn needed a few final days to wrap up with her patients. Before they left, they set a timer on the Polaroid camera and took two family photos in front of their former home one for each of them. The photos captured the moment perfectly, the family excited for their new life. But they never made it, and Roger never called. 
Marilyn reached out to the police, and while they immediately began scanning their route for the license plate, she couldn't sit around worrying. She canceled all upcoming appointments, and a colleague, Henry, picked her up in his station wagon along with the rest of her belongings. They stopped at just about every diner, gas station, and rest stop that they passed, but no one recognized her family or their vehicle. Neither did anyone at the inns or motels. Hour after hour, stop after stop, the Polaroid photo never left Marilyn's grip. They didn't remember pulling off of the main highway, but they'd stopped seeing any road signs long ago, along with anywhere to stop. As the sun lowered in the sky, the pair began to worry. They were sure they'd see a gas station by now, but the endless darkness of the desert continued on forever. There were no other headlights or any lights at all, just a wall of black on the other side of the windows, except for the passing dirt visible in the dim headlights. Finally, they saw a large, hand-painted sign in the distance just off the road. Bender Inn, it said. Last stop for miles. Jerky, gas, rest. They felt unbelievably lucky. As they turned off the road, Marilyn wondered if her family may have been in the same situation, though their van didn't go through gas as quickly as Henry's station wagon. The dull shadow of an old barn came into view against the sky. On the side, in the same sloppy painting as the sign by the road, was written IN in dripping capital letters. There was one lone gas pump out front, below a dim, flickering orange light. Henry parked next to the pump, and Marilyn began grabbing a few things while he went to fill the tank. The nozzle coughed as he squeezed the trigger. He squeezed it again, and it clicked, but nothing came out. He hit the body of the pump with the palm of his hand, and a tinny echo rang out. They'd have to ask inside. Walking towards the door, Marilyn noted several cars parked around back of the building. They entered the windowless door into a low-ceiling room with untreated, dirty wood floors and the immediate smell of must and body odor. There was a kitchen area on the left and a long table with a few clearly handmade crafts, seemingly from animal bones and feathers. On the right, a counter of dried goods and meats. Running the length of the entire room from floor to ceiling was a dirty burlap divider of some kind, like they'd split the back half of the room into another space. In front of the curtain was a dining set with six chairs. From around the back, an old woman entered the front, wiping her hands. She looked angry, but waved them in. The woman didn't speak any English, but she was used to communicating with travelers. Though, as hard as they tried to ask about the gas pump, she didn't understand. Eventually, they gave up, and she gestured that she was going to cook. The old woman began working in the small kitchen, and Marilyn and Henry were left to look around the place. A while had passed when the front door burst open. A large man entered, dirty and greasy and furious. He screamed about the car parked out front. Henry apologized and explained they needed gas. The old man laughed, spitting his tobacco onto the floor, and said it hadn't pissed up anything in 40 or 50 years. Baffled, Marilyn and Henry pleaded for any kind of assistance. Finally, he agreed to make a call about a gas delivery, but only if they moved their car around the side. Marilyn offered to do it as she wanted to grab a few more things from the car. Henry handed her the keys as the old woman began to set the table. A deep sigh escaped Marilyn the moment she sat in the driver's seat. She was so frustrated to be delayed and wanted to be anywhere but here. 
The tears came as she recalled her family's excitement only a few days ago. Now, her future looked as dark as the stains on the fabric inside. Marilyn backed the car away from the pump, pulling around the side of the building towards the other cars. Up close, it was more like a junkyard than a parking lot. Many of the cars were rusted or missing parts. Some looked ancient, nearly 20 or 30 years old. There were several vans and trucks and... Everything stopped. Directly in front of her sat her family's van. The license plate had been removed, but she was certain. She threw the car into park and hurtled towards the van, shoving her face up against the window and looking inside. The van, which had been filled to the brim with their belongings, was now nearly empty. Left behind was only garbage, a few random papers, and her son's teddy bear. A feeling of dread overtook her so heavily she nearly collapsed. Looking back at the ramshackle hotel, she remembered Henry alone inside. Returning to the station wagon, she grabbed her small pocket knife and a canister of bear spray, tucking them both into her pockets. For the first time in her life, she wished she'd owned a gun. Upon opening the door, she noticed a fresh presence in the room. A young, beautiful brunette who was shamelessly flirting with Henry. Hearing Marilyn return, Henry looked back with a huge grin. They were going to be the guests of honor, he said. He pulled the chair back from the head of the table and waited for her to sit. Marilyn wanted to grab him and run, but there was nowhere to go. She hated the idea of the dirty, smelly curtain hanging behind her. The young woman was Kate, a medium who gave lectures at colleges across the South. She introduced Big Daddy, who said nothing in return, and called the old woman Ma. She asked what Marilyn did for a living, and panicking, Marilyn said she was a teacher. How could you be a teacher, she asked, if you're already a full-time doctor? Marilyn's eyes shot to Henry. He nervously laughed, explaining he'd already shared how they knew each other. He looked at Marilyn like she was acting strange. She continued, apologizing. Sometimes she liked to create a new identity when she was on vacation, she said. Vacation, huh? Kate pestered again. So you're not looking for your missing family? If looks could kill, Henry would be dead on the floor. How the hell had he shared so much in such a small amount of time? Marilyn started to answer when Ma dropped a bowl loudly in front of her on the table. A puddle of murky, red-tinted broth filled the bottom, topped with chunks of fatty meats and mysterious vegetables. Big Daddy and Ma began feasting without saying a word. Marilyn watched as Henry lifted his fork and took a lump of gray meat between his lips, chewing and dripping grease down his chin. She didn't have an appetite, and she was baffled that Henry was so blind to how odd everything was around them. But there was something about Kate that was magnetic. She laughed at his jokes and played with his hair. He batted away the compliments in a way that begged for more, and she provided. She rested her hand on his nearest shoulder and stepped behind him. He took another bite as she began to massage his shoulders. You really are handsome, she said. A face like that doesn't come along often. He thanked her awkwardly. It's gonna look even better on my brother. The curtain behind Marilyn whipped open, and a giant mass of a man appeared with a broad wooden mallet. He brought it down directly on Marilyn's head. 
She collapsed lifeless to the floor. Before Henry could scream, Kate slit his throat with the knife in her hand, and he too fell to the wooden planks below. The monster with the mallet stepped back behind the curtain and pulled a large lever. A trap door opened behind Marilyn's seat, and her body rolled inside. He then dragged Henry's body over, pushing him through and landing with a splatter in the darkness below. Kate complimented her brother and embraced him, giving him a long, wet kiss. He grunted with excitement. Ma got up to clear the plates and mop the floors, while Big Daddy helped himself to Marilyn's untouched dinner. He stabbed a chunk of meat with his fork and smeared it through the blood on the table like steak sauce. Time passed. Maybe minutes, maybe hours. Marilyn woke up from the jolt of Henry's body being lifted off top of her where he had landed. Her head was throbbing and the air tasted like pennies. Though her vision was blurry, she watched the man as he set to work, now wearing a butcher's apron. He pulled a massive, rusty meat hook down from its chain and hoisted Henry up. In one slick move, he hooked the metal into Henry's back, releasing the body's full weight to dangle from the rafters. The butcher looked back at Marilyn, who had barely closed her eyes, pretending once again to be dead. She had only just now seen his face for the first time. He looked so familiar. She didn't open her eyes again after that. The noise was enough. The butcher pulled and twisted, accompanied by a chorus of slurping and squirting, even splattering across Marilyn's face at one point. She flinched so slightly, and the man looked at her again, but she was still. He crossed to a counter of tools below a small mirror on the wall, and Marilyn finally caught a clear glimpse of his face. Or rather, her husband's. The man was wearing a distorted, bent, hand-sewn mask made of Roger's own face. Grunting, the man walked off to the back of the room, and Marilyn heard a door open and close. She stood up, but fell back to the floor as her head throbbed with every beat of her heart. She took a deep breath and stood again, steadying herself on a table nearby. Her eyes focused on the contents of the table, and she saw what looked like a bowl made of a human skull, overflowing with bone fragments, hair, and fingernails. She pushed herself away from the table and walked to what was left of Henry, confirming that he had no pulse. The butcher had been harvesting his skin. Though she'd hoped for his sake that he was dead, she now had to accept that she was totally and utterly alone with the benders. The entire basement was filled with an inch or so of warm brown liquid. The space contained tables, boxes, and trunks of rusty hunting gear, and torture devices, knives, and machetes, bits and pieces of animals and human bodies. Working her way through the room, she hoped to find an alternate exit. But it was too late. She heard the door open. The butcher was coming back. Marilyn moved as quickly as she could, returning to where she'd come from and pretending once again to be a corpse. The man walked into the room with his most horrifying tool yet. A chainsaw. He pulled the cord and the chain revved to life. Carefully, the butcher began to remove Henry's legs. Taking advantage of the noise, Marilyn got up from the floor and began running, making it nearly to the door before he noticed. The man whipped around, flinging the chainsaw through the air, clashing into everything near him, 
and followed. Marilyn burst up a set of concrete stairs out of the basement and into a sun garden. She slammed the doors behind her and waited. Moments later, the man appeared, but Marilyn was prepared with her bear spray, blasting him directly in the eyes. He tumbled backwards down the stairs and she shut the doors once again, sprinting into the yard. Suddenly, she plunged several feet below into a pit of bones and rotting carcasses, a terrible brown mix of decomposition. She heard the doors open again and the chainsaw's engine. Marilyn pulled herself down into the rotting soup and allowed herself to drown in the decay. The man came to the edge of the pit and looked down. He rubbed his eyes and looked again. She was properly hidden, and he continued into the yard. She didn't move until the sounds had faded. After pulling herself out of the pit, she ran in the opposite direction of the man, careful not to bump into any of the other residents of the inn. She made her way through the trees and eventually came upon a small house. Without any other option, she knocked on the door, checking behind her that she wasn't being followed. A middle-aged blonde woman let her inside. Marilyn told her that there were killers nearby and that her husband and friend were both dead. The woman calmly listened and brewed Marilyn a cup of tea. But Marilyn didn't want tea. She wanted to use the phone. The woman didn't have a phone, she said, as they were too much trouble. Nor did she have a car or any way to get anywhere, not that there was anywhere to go. Marilyn grew frustrated, raising her voice and begging for any kind of assistance when... From the back of the house came the faint noise of a baby crying. At first, she thought she imagined it. Marilyn looked around the room, seeing nothing to indicate a child. And then she knew. The familiar cries were coming from her son. Marilyn stole for the back room, gaining on the door, but as she reached for the handle, it opened itself. The baby cried from deep inside the room, out of Marilyn's sight. Blocking the view was Ma, looking furious as ever. Marilyn backed towards the living room, now hoping to escape outside, when a phone rang from around the corner. She looked at the blonde woman, who smiled with a mostly toothless grin. You told me you didn't have a phone, she said. The woman looked like she could barely contain herself guess I forgot. She laughed as Ma answered the call, and Marilyn left the small house and returned to the woods. It was dusk and getting harder to see. Listening close, she could only hear the sounds of bugs and birds and maybe bats. She took a few quiet steps, keeping an eye on the shadows around her. Suddenly, the butcher was right behind her. Marilyn screamed and ran as the man followed, slicing and dicing through the air like he just couldn't wait to catch his prey. But being such a large man, he couldn't match Marilyn's speed. She cleared the woods and came upon a field she hadn't seen before, and in front of her a stream and a wooden fence. She stepped into the water and sank to her knees, barely able to continue forward. He was getting closer. She squished and squirmed and finally freed herself from the mud, pulling herself up the wooden fence and toppling through the middle boards. There was a road in the distance. The butcher leapt over the mud with one jump and gripped the top of the fence with his left hand. He attempted to hurdle over the top, but he didn't have the height, and instead he crashed through the boards and onto the ground, dropping the chainsaw. Unmanned, it spun around wildly connecting with his ankle and nearly cutting his foot clean off. 
He howled and screamed from the ground. Marilyn reached the road and eventually was picked up by a passing driver and taken to the hospital. They sent a pair of troopers out to the Bender farm right away, at first unsure of her statement. Ma answered the door and indicated that she couldn't speak any English. The men pushed their way inside, but the bloody sheet had been taken down. There was a rug over the trap door. The floor was freshly mopped. A flirtatious Kate insisted that no one matching Marilyn's description had ever been by, but one of the cops pushed back, saying he saw her car on the side of the building. Ma began yelling that the men must leave, physically pushing them from the house. In an instant, she'd given away her mastery of the English language, as well as her true nature. But the benders weren't going down without a fight. Big Daddy appeared in the doorway, clubbing one of the officers with the hammer. Kate had her knife ready to go, but the second man was able to run from the house to his patrol car. He made a desperate call over the radio and grabbed the spare ammo for his gun. Straightening his aviators, he stepped back out of the car. The butcher had been lying under the vehicle, waiting, and used his toy to cut through the officer's legs. He fell to the ground, screaming in pain, as the butcher began to make his way out from underneath. Word spread quickly, and several members of the county joined the other troopers when they arrived, guns drawn. The sheriff offered to let them come out unharmed, but there was no movement from the house. He repeated himself, but once again, nothing. As he stepped forward, offering their last chance, a bullet came from the side of the building, piercing the man's skull and tossing his hat into the wind. From there, it was war. The mob shot and shot and shot at the house until most of them were out of bullets. The gunfire was returned at first, but not for long, giving them hope they'd taken out their targets. Someone tossed a Molotov cocktail through the battered open door, and the house erupted. From behind the structure came the roar of a van with all four members of the Bender family inside. They plowed into the vigilantes, with the butcher leaning out the side, attacking with the chainsaw. Only one trooper made it to his car fast enough to follow the van, but they looped around, faking him out, and he drove right into the pit behind the house. No one knows for sure what happened to them. The tracks disappeared, and the van was never located. Men combed through every inch of the Bender property, but never found any trace of the blonde woman that Marilyn had mentioned, nor a young boy. The family was later held accountable for over 70 deaths. Substantial rewards were offered for any information, but no one ever came forward. The Benders had escaped the clutch of the law, returning to the dust of the desert. The Chainsaw Massacre Written and told by Brian Renaud Inspired by True Events
On her way home from the market, an old woman took a shortcut through the cemetery. She was so hungry, and the money she'd saved had barely filled her basket. As always, she wondered how she'd make it to the next week, though she always found a way. As she passed under a massive weeping willow, she noticed that several gravestones were missing, and some plots had even been dug up. For what reason, she had no idea. Looking around, she seemed to be alone in the graveyard. With her mind wandering, she failed to keep her eyes on the path before her, and she tripped over something, falling to the ground. Sore, she looked back to see a large stick, or rather, some kind of bone. She picked it up, eyeing it carefully, and looking around once again, seeing no one. Without another thought, she added the bone to her basket and continued on her way. She thought of the vegetables she carried, corn and onions, green beans and carrots, her stomach grumbled, thinking of the delicious soup she'd have for dinner. Soup was so perfect this time of year, not to mention the many health benefits of bone broth. She started the pot of water immediately upon getting home, adding her fresh vegetables along with barley, potatoes, and seasonings. The bone boiled in the bottom of the pot, and the delicious stew simmered gently, saturating her entire home. A familiar meow made its way to her ears, and the woman opened her door to see the stray cat who often visited. Excited for the company, she invited her small friend in, providing a bowl of fresh water and a few bites of chopped carrots. When the soup was done, she sat with her bowl and savored every bite. It was delicious, and the large pot would surely last for days. The cat's starving eyes watched her as she finished, and she knew she had to share. The woman plucked the bone from the pot, still simmering, and fed one end into her meat grinder. The long boil made it a bit easier to grind the first few inches into a sand-like texture that piled onto a small plate she prepared. Growing up, her mother had taught her to use every last bit of any resource. This always included the animal bones, an excellent source of calcium and protein with barely any flavor of its own. Mixing the grindings with a mashed potato, she placed the rest of the bone back in the pot and set the plate in front of the cat, licking her spoon. They were both so spoiled, she thought. Hours later, she awoke in the dead of night as a terrified howl filled her ears. Illuminating her lantern, she squinted into the room, but the cat was nowhere to be found. She called for him, but he didn't come. The soft bubbling of the simmering soup was the only noise in the night around her, until she heard the voice. Give me back my bone. The woman turned to see the small window above her stove was now open, letting in the chilly night breeze. First the howling, and now... She was so tired, and the wind often groaned through the house, but this sounded so clear. Closing the window, she planned to look for the cat in the morning. She climbed back into bed, pulling the blanket over her and settling in. But then, she heard it again. Give me back my bone. The woman was still in the bed, eyes wide open. She just needed to wait until the sun was up, she told herself. She'd had too much to eat and was having a nightmare. She insisted to herself that there was no voice at all. But only a while later, the voice returned. I want my bone back. 
It came from right outside her door. She stole from the bed, plunging her hands into the scalding soup to retrieve the bone. She rushed to the window, opening it quickly, and tossed the bone into the darkness. Take it! She screamed. It was silent. Trembling, the woman shut the window once again with her charred hands and stepped back into her home. Had it worked? Was it gone? She could only hear herself breathe. I want my bone! The door burst open, and the woman screamed with mortal terror. I gave you your bone! I gave it back! I'm sorry. I didn't know. I didn't know. I gave it back. What more do you want from me? She sank into her bed as the being stepped through the doorway into her home. I want the rest of it.